0: Hello and welcome to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tom Cryer, today's host. Today we'll be talking to Professor Denise Meningolo about her new 2021 edited volume, Radical Roots, Public History and a Tradition of Social Justice Activism. Radical Roots recovers an activist tradition running through the heart of public history as it has developed in the United States. Published with Amherst College Press, Radical Roots is open access and hence free to read at this very moment. Today, while it's always difficult to summarise the rich research contained in an edited volume, we'll be discussing the major takeaways and lessons of Radical Roots and the research collective behind the volume. To introduce my guest, Professor Denise Merengolo is a scholar practitioner in the field of public history working at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. There, Professor Berengolo teaches courses in community-based public history practice, museums of material culture, and digital public history. Her book, Museums, Monuments, and National Parks, Towards a New Genealogy of Public History, published in 2012, won the 2013 National Council on Public History Prize for the best book in the field. She is also the vice president slash president-elect of the National Council on Public History. So, distinguished company to have with me today today. Professor Mongolo, to open in traditional New Books Network fashion, for the first question, how did you first come to edit this volume and assemble the Radical Roots Research Collective behind the effort?
1: Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to talk about this project with you. So uh, the book, Radical Roots, really picks up where my first project left off. Um, In my first project, my first book project, what I really wanted to discover was what does it mean to practice history as a public service? And so my logic at the time was how how can I find that? And so in the United States, government made sense to me because if you work for the government, you're a public servant. And if you're a historian working for the government, maybe that's a way for me to get at uh, the origins of that perspective. Um, but by the time I got to the end of that book, I hadn't found what I was looking for. And I hadn't found what I was looking for because it became pretty clear that as historians were working for the federal government in the past, um, they became more concerned about questions of authority and legitimacy for good reason. There was a lot of forces at play. They're working within an institutional structure. And so the sense of who they were working for really got lost. And this led me back to my original historiographical problem, which is that most of us in the field today in America really see ourselves as contributing to social justice, that the work that we're doing is on behalf of communities and with communities, that our goal is to open up narratives in ways that help people find stronger foundations for activism or maybe not even activism, just stronger forms of identity formation. And the existing literature doesn't lead us there. It seemed like you could only ever end up in a kind of conservative space where the purpose of public history is to just assert a nationalism and reassert uh, authority and expertise. So, When I finished the first book and I was feeling a little bereft, I reached out to some of my colleagues. And in particular, there's a scholar named Dan Kerr who works at American University. He's an oral historian and he is truly an activist oral historian. His work has been among communities of the unhoused, collecting oral histories as a way to uh, help establish a stronger political foundation. And so he and I were on the same page, and just started framing questions like, "What would it look like to identify the origins of this kind of a practice?" Because we really believed we didn't make this up; (laughs) it came from somewhere. It had to have an origin point. And so he and I framed some questions, and we really felt strongly that it was the questions were too big for a monograph. You know, we could maybe find one case study that would be a book, but We might end up in the same place so we put out a call for uh, a working group so rather than just contributors we wanted a group of people who would work together to frame questions to identify points of origin to sort of figure out where to poke around in the past to find this kind of activist tradition um and so we basically organically a group of people came together who were interested in this set of questions. We started working online at first through a series of questions and then we had we met in person at the National Council on Public History, I think it was in 2013, and uh, from there established kind of four areas of inquiry, which to be honest were based on who was in the room, right? So it was public history educators, oral historians, uh, preservationists who work kind of from the grassroots with communities trying to save their their neighborhoods and structures. Um, and uh, there's a fourth group and I'm not remembering it right now, But but so those categories came organically from the people in the room. And then we spent a long time, not just writing, but writing together, researching together, figuring out how to change the questions. And so it was truly not only research about a collaborative social justice inclusive process, but also modeling that kind of process in a scholarly endeavor, right? So our product was a book, not a public history product, but we wanted to use that same process for the production of scholarship. So that's how the project came about um and i think at the end of the day it, it helped us identify exactly the kinds of roots we were looking for and then opened up a whole new set of questions
0: great great and to maybe pull out uh what we might call the mission statement of the book you say on your very first page quoting here that radical roots um quote critically examined an activist thread, a conscious effort to connect history making to the profession of social justice which runs through the profession of public history as it has evolved in in the United States. What's at stake in uncovering this thread? And I'm wondering, kind of, as you progressed into this research project and started to have these conversations, how did it change or alter your own understanding of what going about public history research or practice um, looks like?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. So, you know, first of all, in terms of what's at stake, just to amplify, the thing is, we are already here, right? This kind of critical activist thread is already here. And most of us who think about our work as advancing social justice or equity or inclusivity uh, kind of stop short of thinking that our work alone will end inequality. But we all believe that challenging exclusive narratives and false understandings of the past taking sides, if you will, uh, of historically marginalized groups, we all believe that this can positively have a positive impact, right? That it can start to shift the way people think about the past and the present. And so it was important to us to figure out what that looked like. In terms of what changed for us, uh, the challenging part is recognizing failure, (laughs) right? And how often these projects fail, sometimes because the goals are too lofty, sometimes because institutions don't support um, this kind of work, <laughs> and sometimes just because it's really hard and and you you kind of are not on the same page as the communities that you're working for that so at any point in the process, you take a slightly wrong turn and it falls apart. But I think what we all came to was typically histories are written as if uh, history either progresses or declines, right? And there's a straight line all the way through. But looking at this past as a series of case studies allows you to think about influence and change over time slightly differently. It makes very transparent the fact that change happens in fits and starts and backward steps and forward steps, and that even the failed examples have lessons to teach us. And so that turned out to be, I think, a crucial takeaway, because very often, you know, a question that I might get asked is like, well, you know, in in the case study you wrote, what's the long-term impact? Maybe, arguably, there's not a long-term impact of any one given incident. But the long-term impact is kind of in in influence of individuals. This person meets this person, it changes how they think about how they do their work. Um, The other thing that's really, I I think, crucial is that looking at failures or looking at short-sightedness allows us to begin to frame out uh, a critical perspective that we can use to reflect on our own work because historically speaking, public history has been judged through the lens of the discipline. And this is why public historians have sometimes in the past defaulted to questions of authority because that's, what's being, that's where they're being challenged. You're not being an authoritative historian. You're not producing a monograph. Your work doesn't look like what the discipline says it should look like. And that is not helpful to us when we're trying to do something a little bit different, so our goal is to begin to frame out what are the criteria of our is of our professionalism? How do we know if we're doing a good job? How can we critique ourselves in productive ways? And so that was sort of the lofty goal of the collection.
0: Very um, big questions, I guess. yeah. and and it's worth saying, Insofar as you're raising attention and calling attention to this radical roots tradition. This is a tradition that you say in the introduction has been marginalized, has been forgotten about in prominent um accounts of kind of the development of 20th century American historiography. Um, you claimed in the past, um, I'm quoting you two thousand and four here, um, about kind of a gender binary in the ways we evaluate and reward historical labor that tends to work against um, public history, which is regarded as feminized. And that kind of, you say, mitigates against the ability of public history to articulate a unique historical professionalism. I mean, uncovering this activist thread, seeing all these kinds of fits and starts and different projects that you talked about right now, how did that change your sense of um, what a public history researcher or practitioner looks like and and why might that matter
1: um yeah so that quote it's funny that you found that one because i think that's from i think that's from an article that eventually that was part of my dissertation that then kind of got morphed a little bit into the first book but i think you know that we talk a lot about institutionalized racism in the united states and everywhere Uh, and the impact of that on how we interact with one another or how we you know what happens when racism is is institutionalized. To me, that is an essential cornerstone of understanding the United States, right? But we talk less, I think, about institutionalized sexism. And it became really obvious over the long course of my research that that's part of what's happening in the realm of public history is that, and and at first it's, it's literally about the bodies of the people doing the work. So the way that the historiography was originally framed was women began the work of preservation as part of their process of moving into the public sphere. They did that by preserving historic houses because the home is the center of values. And so we've got places like George Washington's home and other sites, which are actually plantations. So there's also institutionalized racism in how those things are framed. But then in the process of professionalization, women got left out of that. They didn't get paid positions to take over those places, men did. And when men took over as the professional managers, they had this unstable professional location. They were managing sites that were kind of Uh, already seen as too feminine, too female, too emotional, but they're there as historians trying to assert their professionalism and be objective and scientific. So that I feel like that's just baked into how we have thought about our professionalism. And I think, and the other interesting thing is that in the United States, it's a lot of women (laughs) who do public history, a lot of women in the field doing the work, not exclusively, but it does seem to be the National Council on Public History is, I believe, majority women in the profession. Everything's changing demographically, it's changing, but that has been the case that it's mostly women. It matters because that impacts salaries. (laughs) It's kind of seen as a pink collar job. Um, And so there's a lot of truly material impacts of the way that the profession is framed in an invisible sense around our ideas about gender. So that's kind of part one of your question. But I think part two of your question is that it really matters to re-examine those roots and to challenge those deeply institutionalized invisible belief systems so that we can ferret them out and be much more self-conscious of how we are interacting in ways that are reinforcing a sense of inequality. I will you know, like public history writ large is one of those areas where people tend to say, Well, you didn't get into that for the money, right? You do that because you love it. And Sure. I love my work and it's important to me to love my work. It makes it easier to go to work, but I actually work because I have to pay bills like that. So I think it's it's really important to pay attention to the ways in which those institutionalized belief systems impact the profession writ large. Um, I also think that that problem of professionalism and the way it's been gendered has been one of the reasons that it took us such a long time to really define public history as a unique field, not like, to use a gendered term, not the little sister of the discipline. I feel like that's how it was treated for a really long time. And in order to break away from that, you first have to acknowledge the institutional biases that are in there. And then you can begin to carve out a clearer sense of who we are and what we do and what our value system is and how to perform that in ways that are actually productive for the people that we are trying to serve. So our this project, Radical Roots, it's really building on a foundation of scholarship that started really about 2006 uh, in a special issue of the Public Historian where a group of scholars led by Rebecca Kennard really set out to to say, "We have never effectively dis- defined the field." So let's start to do that. And this project is kind of standing on the shoulders of those giants <laughs> who started that process
0: great. great. and And you mentioned a lot down. I think this is a key theme NepheA nearly all the contributors at some point grapple with in this volume is the role of institutions. It's the role of universities, the role of classrooms, the role of colleges, um, any kind of higher education institution. One phrase that really stood out to me from one of your contributors was Rachel Donaldson, who calls for severing public history from what she calls it's classroom tether. Um, Other contributors like the Detroit Detroit, uh, born and raised food and environmental justice activist Shane Bernando, Uh, sees deprofessionalization and decolonization as allied, and particularly in that first section of the book, I believe, on oral history, a lot of folks there talk about a more equalitarian, let's say, role of the public historian. Um, Indeed, to cite further from from your introduction, you do warn about the risk that public history can be co-opted, neutralized um, by professionalization, institutionalization, standardization. Those are all processes we're well aware of happening in the american historical profession particularly since the 1970s-ish um to date once you've built awareness and come to terms and discovered the history of these radical roots which often lie far earlier chronologically and far uh in a less institutionalized manner and yet you encounter the difficulties of working within that institutionalized structure today how do you guard that tradition
1: this is a really critical question and a really big question. And I'm not really sure that I have all the answers. But for me, when I look at the collection as a whole, I think that the contributors point in a few different directions. And so on the one hand, public history really requires us to build trust, to be present, and to remain connected, right? So if we are doing projects on a community centered in a community centered fashion, you can't just march in there with your classroom full of students and say, here are the historians to save the day. Like that's not how it works. It's really grounded in a long relationship that you've built over time. So we don't wanna go in and work with communities for a short time only to extract knowledge for our own benefit and've ta- I've spoken to many people you know that kind of work, which began you know with the best intentions, actually creates a lot of animosity or, or um, reinforces existing animosity in what we call the town and gown, right the local people versus the the university. and I've had conversations with community members who who have a sense that we are making money off of their stories. We are gathering material and then putting it in collections that are behind a paywall that they can't access anymore. And so we really cannot, you know, public historians cannot be in a position to be extracting knowledge for our own benefit. And so that seems to require a kind of permanence, like you're gonna be with this community and be committed to it indefinitely. On the other hand, I think it might be useful to think about our work as temporary. And I think this is a little bit of what both um, Shane Bernardino and, and Rachel Donaldson are talking about that we should allow for and plan for projects to be finished. <laughs> and not necessarily on our timeline, but on the community, like they should have, a, they could have a natural ending. And the reason that I think that's beneficial is it resists that final impulse to bring the stuff into some kind of system and make it permanent. Because once it's permanent, no matter how radical it was in the beginning, it kind of hardens and loses its its uh, potential. And so I think that that is one tricky space to figure out what's the right length, <laughs> what's the best kind of commitment. So that's that's one. I think another important safeguard and this is maybe too soft a skill but it's humility right you you, you're going in there really not asserting your authority as an expert in history but really thinking of ourselves as lending a set of tools to a larger project that doesn't belong to us so we are all sitting at a table together historians who work in universities museum professionals community members who have a a question they want answered grassroots whoever we're all sitting at a table we all have a set of skills with us and we're sharing them no one is really should have the loudest voice there or we should figure out who gets the loudest voice at any given time that's the tricky part too so humility i think is really crucial we're contributors and facilitators not the teacher in the classroom. Uh, The other really challenging thing is about funding. And in the United States, money is the biggest problem because most public history, it may have some government-centered funds like through the National Endowment for the Humanities or the National Endowment for the Arts. There are, are funding agencies that can direct money to projects, but in general, everything you have to just apply for grants every single time, apply for grants every single time. And if you're doing that through an an institution like a university, once the money comes in, it somehow belongs to the university. And it can be very challenging to distribute that funding in a way that's equitable to the members of your community. It opens up giant cans of worms, a tiny little small example but I've had funding to do community-based work. And if you want people to show up to something, you probably got to feed them, right? (laughs) So you want to have food available. And for some reason that has been really tricky to manage within the university system. Kind of figured it out, but it was just, there's always a hurdle for distributing money back into the community. But, and that's also a little bit contrary to how academics have historic, maybe especially humanists have thought about money, about funding coming into university projects. It's like, well, that's money for my project, like to buy out my teaching or, you know, to support my research, all valid and valuable. But when you're working with a community, you have to share that funding in an equitable fashion. Um, Another thing to think about is, and this, again, tricky, one size does not fit all. So even though the goal of this book is to identify ways that we might figure out what some best practices are, or figure out what the work looks like, or how to define it, or, you know, how would we critique it fairly, it doesn't mean that every project looks exactly the same. It doesn't mean that what works best in one situation works best in another. And that also makes it, it it almost feels like every time you're starting, you're starting from scratch. And for better or worse, I think that's correct, right? Because you're working with an entirely new group of people. And then the last thing I'll say in answer to this very big question is that we have to stay aware and critical of all the ways that power is operating within any given uh, public history setting. So for example, if your notion of objectivity is that you cannot side with a particular community or that you have to include all perspectives in any given project, then your practice is gonna lean into conformity in ways that are not um, productive necessarily. And you're gonna be upholding, however accidentally or inadvertently, the very power structures that you said you were there to dismantle. Right. And so we have to remember that museums and other public history sites and universities are not only not neutral, in the words of LaTanya Autry, but also they're not innocent. Right. Those structures are going to are just forces to be reckoned with and constantly questioning how power is operating in those situations is really critical.
0: Yeah. Yep, and one of the most powerful and impactful sections of this work, which I'd recommend to anyone grappling with these questions, particularly educators of any kind of variety, are the two collections of uh, interviews, group discussions that you have in this group, which contain some really honest and kind of candid um, examples of people from various traditions and various backgrounds, of various states and locations and institutions um, grappling with these questions. And there's some really fascinating. Um, yeah, debates and topics to get into um, there. One um, quote from one of those discussions um, from Maria E. Cotera, an assistant professor at the University of Michigan and co-founder of the Chicana Pormiraza Digital Memory Collective, suggests um, scholars, historians writing in universities, um, write about decolonizing this and decolonizing that and decolonial practice, but they very rarely do things in their practice that are really challenging some of the primary assumptions of scholarly knowledge production it's individualized it's competitive it's transforming radical knowledges into exchangeable commodities very big impactful quote very difficult uh, question um to come out of it but institutionally professionally financially for all these reasons um how true can the university basis in be to these roots? and as I think the optimist among us would like to think public history is being more recognized in universities. Has this become any easier over the last kind of, let's say half century or so in the United States?
1: So the answer is yes and no. (laughs) The answer also depends on the specific university and the context in which people are working. And it also seems to depend on a variety of external factors in any given university setting. So, um, one thing I want to say is, in the past, for public historians working in university settings, a lot of the work of public history fell under the umbrella of service because, you know, an academic position, you're judged on like how successful you are on research, teaching, and service. And the unspoken truth is that research is the most <laughs> important piece, <laughs> and teaching should be good. But if your research is great, You know, that's the most important piece. And service is, thank you, but the least important thing. And so if a lot of your work is categorized under service and not recognized as part of your research and teaching, frankly, then it's making it very, very invisible and also endangering the scholars who are actually challenging the system By like Maria Katera, integrating community based activism as part of her work. So um, not only did it sometimes not get counted at all, but there are many examples of getting counted against you. Like, what have you been doing? Where's your research? I don't see it because you've been working in the community. Um, The needle has moved on this a little bit and there's been a push towards new models for Again, we're talking about university systems, but new models for promotion and tenure review and all that stuff, new definitions of research and productivity, um, and new respect and new institutional rewards. So the Carnegie Institution has now a category, I think they call it civic engagement, but universities sort of that allowed them to recognize this kind of work as broadly impactful, um, and that has really helped. I think a challenge has been that often departments think of this in terms of equivalencies. So I, I've I, I'm asked to do um, a lot, some program reviews, and I've been talking to people across the country and also through the National Council on Public History, and I hear from people who ask me, okay, so can you just help me, like is an exhibit the same as a book? (laughs) You know, is if it's a small exhibit at a small institution, is that the same as an article in a good journal? And I'm probably not helping, but my answer is always, they're not equivalent. Like it's not an equivalency. The work is completely different. You're trying to compare two things. And in doing that, you're eliminating whole aspects of the work. So I, I think that that is a remaining problem. The other thing that you kind of gestured towards is, yes, public history in the United States has gained new visibility and new legitimacy, but one of the things that's happening again, maybe for the 400th time, is that there's a job crisis. PhDs don't know where they're gonna get work. And every time there's a job crisis, job crisis and also concerns about declining numbers of history majors, right? So when that happens, everyone's like, how can we make sure that people know the history major's practical? I know, let's start public history programs. And so public history programs pop up in response to a perceived crisis and the faculty are very often not experienced as public historians. They're sort of starting from scratch, like what is this thing called public history? And that's a little, it's like reinventing the wheel over and over again and kind of colliding with the same institutional barriers, right? Coming back around to, well, but then how do we measure that as research? Or what do you mean the process is more important than the product? So it it's frustrating to have the same questions raised over and over again. And right now, this is not the first time, but there seems to be a big push for PhD programs, and it's not coming from students. It's coming from administrators and departments, a big push for PhD programs in public history. And I have real concerns about how that impacts the, fee, the, the practice, because it's not that I don't think intellectual research is crucial to the field. Obviously, I do think intellectual research is crucial to the field, but I don't know that I think it's a false um, certification that is going to pressure the job market and the salaries and the requirements just are not, they're not, they're not going to match. And I used to tell this story and then I stopped telling the story because I thought it was too old fashioned, but I think it's still relevant. But when I went back to school to get my doctoral degree, I actually wanted to go back into museums And it was really hard to get an interview because people said, you have a PhD, like you're going to want too much money, which is very funny, by the way, because it's not (laughs) that it's not that salaries in academia are so high, but it was a barrier. And I don't I don't know that that's changed. And I also don't know that I think it would be good for it to change because we don't want we want the field to remain accessible broadly accessible broadly open to a lot of perspectives and the more educational requirements you put in there i think the riskier it is
0: yeah yeah really interesting really interesting and um one of the principles as i said kind of in these really candid oral histories particularly that runs throughout this work is um precisely kind of the the notions you've been talking to us today about the notion of self-evaluation the notion of vulnerability humility you mentioned that earlier key characteristic um in public history um there are all kinds of moments here where historians and contributors and researchers and practitioners looking at these examples of public history in the past recognize and praise aspects of these projects but also know the limitations um of them um to give one example the really interesting chapter on the lower east side tenement museum um in new york um, Rebecca Romato talks about the implication of that museum in gentrification, um, calling upon historians to radically admit to their own limitations, privileges, failures, and shared authority. Another beautiful chapter title actually coming from Clarissa J. Sedlio talks about the imperfectly progressive public historians of the 1930s, um, a key decade in this work really. I appreciate that this is Probably a, a mentally exhausting task as a public historian to think through all these questions throughout your career. But what does reflecting on those limitations um, mean in practice? Particularly, again, when you discovered these radical projects, um, for all their successes or failures, did that cause you to cast a different eye on the projects you see you see going on around you today?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think I, I think I said earlier, but it's very interesting the echoes in these examples and the various contributors to this book that go back to that special issue of the public historian in 2006. So the ideas that you're pulling out about radical self-reflection and responsiveness, those are ideas that were sort of born in oral history practice That uh, Rebecca Kennard, again in 2006, set as the foundation. Like, let's think about public history in these terms that you have to be self reflective, you have to kind of do reflection in action as you're working. And and those really have served to guide us in the past 20 years, right? As we're trying to improve our practice. I think in this volume, what we see is a reassertion of the importance of that work. And to your question, what does that look like in practice? The answer is it's really, really hard because it requires, I I always say that I don't know how great I am on my feet, right? When I'm in the middle of a situation or I'm having a conversation, I sometimes need a minute. To really reflect on what's happening did I handle that right did I not handle that right and so in the in terms of a radical practice where you really see yourself as contributing to the advancement of social justice it's even more critical to be self-reflective to be able to acknowledge I handled that interaction incorrectly I was a I was too hung up on making sure that this idea from scholarship got inserted into the conversation. I lost track of the fact that this is a conversation. And so that self-reflection is something that can happen, you know, overnight for me, usually it's what happens. (laughs) Um, But the reflection in action is the really hard part. And it requires radical listening in a way that oral historians are very good at most of the rest of us, not always so much, right? (laughs) Most of the rest of us are often anticipating a question and answering it, answering what we thought the question was. I may be doing that right now. Um, (laughs) But in a radical practice, you really, the, the trick is to be very, very present. And so one of the things that I've become a lot more aware of is trying to think about how you, those are teachable skills they're soft skills kind of right they're not something i can really i never like an exam anyway where you just say back to me what i said to you i don't <laughs> I don't see the value of that but but more how do i know that you are building towards being able to listen how do i know that you're you are building towards empathy right that's also a skill set and so i think you know, the example that you gave of Rebecca Amato's uh, essay on the Tenement Museum, here's an example where the leadership of the Tenement Museum, a, a, an institution that was built on a radical belief that uh, they could impact perceptions about immigrants and immigration, suddenly sort of starts acting like a bully in the neighborhood, right? And what happened, I part of what happened is, that sort of reflection and action didn't take place. And it had to do with not being very self conscious about the power relationships or not wanting to be self conscious about the power relationships or believing that your mission is more important than what's happening in the building next door. And so, you know, looking at incidents like that, which arguably is a failure of radical practice, dare I say, wonderful institution, the Tenement Museum. But in that moment, there was a mistake. And being able in the aftermath, when that happens, because it will happen, to figure out how to take ownership in a meaningful way, to offer meaningful reflection for everybody involved and to do some repair work is kind of the next level of radical practice. It's funny because the more I do this work, the more I I realize that some of my other practices that have nothing to do with my scholarship, like my study of mindfulness or all of that, actually also is relevant in the realm of of public history.
0: Great, great. Yeah, it's um, I like it's about it's it's all about that um, ability for what we might call kind of bounce back ability for humility for recognizing there will be u-turns um and i'm sure this is really interesting to anyone who's kind of emerging within public historical practice listening to this right now and we'll kind of talk about lessons um from this work um at the end of the interview um so maybe kind of give some shout outs to some interesting chapters and case studies and local context that you talk about um here um again the second round table in this book i'm discussing public history pedagogy in urban universities Mary Rizzo, um, one of the contributors there, states that the meaning of radical is always local. There are tons of local examples, local contexts, local tensions and debates running through this work. Um, your own chapter to this volume on the American Civilization Institute of Morristown, um, you talk about how it was designed as a creative response to a variety of local conflicts and opportunities, that's quoting you there, centering those local context influences um, institutions reveals how public history emerged in response again to a complex and varying social and political environment um all that's a very long way of asking um what's revealed by you know getting to grips and getting into kind of um the details of these local contexts Um, perhaps you could cite for our listeners um a couple of these contexts these institutions that really stood out to you um
1: yeah yeah Um, So first of all, I just want to comment that, you know, I think the focus on the local is purposeful because the aims of radical public history are so lofty and um, like foolishly idealistic. I embrace that. But if you if, you know, if you were to ask me, what's my goal? I always say to end racism, (laughs) to promote empathy. Right. And so this isn't really if you if you focus too much on the big lofty goal it's it's such a losing battle <laughs> that it's hard to to keep motivated in your work and so because if you can acknowledge that all politics is local and that the best you can do is is implement or inspire change or or support change at a local level looking at those small moments and those small projects and little incremental changes can help bring into view the broad political potential of radical practice in public history. We can open up critical dialogues. Sometimes maybe that's all we can do. And that's that's a good thing that to, to create that as a space for change. Um, the case study that has stayed with me Since editing this volume, is actually the story of Paul Romanoff in the Museum of Jewish Culture, which is the study, uh, uh, the subject of Laura Schiavo's essay. And here is an individual, determined, foolishly optimistic curator. Who believes so fervently in the power of museums to influence change, big change, right? And anti-Semitism? Like that's his goal with his with his work that he quite literally sacrificed his health and his life towards that aim because he and I've thought a lot about him because it feels like the hard lesson of his story is that, you can't only advocate for communities, you also have to advocate for yourself. So there's something in his story about the necessity of changing our professional environments at the same time that we're working towards broader social and political change. So that story is so shocking. (laughs) that I can't stop thinking about that individual. But the other one that I think a lot about is the, the, the conversation that you've already talked about between Shane Bernardino and Ma- Maria Katera, Fernanda Espinoza, and Amy Starcheski, And that's a conversation about the impact of oral history. And they really point to the ways in which radical practices necessarily change professions and professional institutions um in the united states currently there's a really strong um push towards unionization in the culture sector and um including but not exclusively public history sites and the examples in this book seem to suggest that unionization could be a powerful important and possibly unforeseen outcome of all of this history of radical practice and then um I kind of like my study of uh, my little school in uh, Marstown, New Jersey. And I think the takeaway, so m- my study was about, uh, again, like an education project between a high school and a university. That's what it looked like on the surface, but scratch the surface. And it was a public history project designed to challenge some deeply held belief systems that were shaping a local political culture. and. What I like about that story is two things. One is a takeaway is it was very personality driven. There were two individuals involved there who had very strong personalities and you see that throughout all the local history examples like some individual with a really strong sense of right and wrong or really strong mission or whatever, trying to enact change. I don't know if that's, I don't know if I want to say that's good or bad. It's something to pay attention to, that it's very often personality driven. And then the other piece of it, and I think this also echoes through many of the case studies, is a small project can actually have broad impact, even when it's temporary. So that's the case in many of the examples, uh, the Tenement Museum possibly to an example where you don't want that kind of long-term change. Um, At Morristown, an example where a project was temporary and it had a very powerful and positive impact on the school system. So looking at those local examples helps amplify issues like that and many others that probably readers will identify that that I didn't identify.
0: Great, great. Thank you. Yeah, really interesting um, examples. And I'd encourage any any listener to um pick up this book and dive into those examples because there are a plethora and there's an immense range of chapters here. i believe there must be something like 20 chapters um over 600 pages so there's bound to be an example which interests um, everyone in there um another kind of theme particularly as we look to the late 20th century is the uh let's call it the entanglements of public history um as a profession as a practice and all the various kinds of social movement activism we get, um, particularly towards the end of the 20th century. Um, But your conclusion, nonetheless, kind of looking back over a lot of these examples, suggests that we often ignore precisely how these strategies, uh, public history strategies, that is, have benefited the movements themselves. Um, I appreciate this is quite a big question and probably quite a difficult one to answer um, succinctly. Um, But how does recognising the role of public history within these movements um, alter our understandings um, of them, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I would reframe it just a little, slightly. So there's a very well-studied relationship between all of the social and political movements, particularly of the 1960s, and the discipline of history. So many activist organizations, as part of their regular operations, did collecting, they preserved stories, they made sure their posters got saved, they gathered t-shirts, right, and they understood that reclaiming those marginalized histories in material form was crucial to the movement, and so what it how that's been seen through the lens of the discipline is that that, all of that work within activist organizations appears to have mostly influenced later scholarship, right? Like, thank goodness those organizations saved this stuff so that scholars can come behind them, look at these primary source collections and advance new theoretical perspectives that result in monographs and articles. Very true. But when viewed from the perspective of radical public history practice, we can begin to recognize that the opposite is also true, that uh, social hist- social movement's impulse to collect stories and artifacts and all that material validated the political role that history-making can have. So, uh, it It kind of illuminates collecting and preserving as political acts that can advance more just and equitable perspectives. So it's a slight difference maybe, but I think for public historians, we're not necessarily thinking, oh, I'm so glad they saved that stuff so I can write my article. It's more like that act was an act of public history that should be validated as such because it demonstrates that public history has a political role to play in advancing change.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah and it's 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 worth saying for anyone who's interested in the intellectual history of history anyone who's interested in historiography who's read peter novick or any kind of the, the massive um works like that which discuss the history um, of the history itself in the united states this work um casts an alternative angle to a lot of those narratives and a lot of our beliefs about consensus history and then you know a rising sense of gender and racial um activism inflecting histories there's a lot more of a complex picture um which comes out here and i think that's really beneficial for again our sense of um historical practice and what the historian looks like um to kind of move towards a a last um question we talked about lessons earlier lessons for doing this project i recognize hearing you speak today that obviously there's a lot of self-reflective work and thinking going into this volume on the part of each and every one of these contributors um obviously this project like any social um, like any collaborative project has been an immense one a long-term one a one involving lots of conversations between a lot of different practitioners from different walks of life um what is the most important lesson you've learned from working alongside all these folks? And maybe, maybe to add an addendum to that, what is the most important lesson you'd give to someone entering or emerging within this field from this experience?
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking so much time with the volume. Um, I want to, to say to anyone who's curious about the book, you know, the benefit of it being the, one of the many reasons we want to publish it on a digital platform is you can dip in and out. You can pick and choose how you want to read it. And so I, I hope that you won't be daunted by the 600 pages. You don't have to read 600 pages. I think a few takeaways. I'm going to answer your question in terms of process, and I don't know if that's how you it, intended it. But You know, I think we all as social and cultural historians understand that diverse perspectives are more accurate perspectives, right? Like that's why we got interested in social history in the first place, because we're trying to broaden what we understand about the past. But that's also true in process. So that bringing diverse perspectives to the table can impact the questions that you wanna ask and and lead you to conclusions or open up new questions that are more, more accurate and more um, uh, insightful than you might ask on your own. Um, I would also say, just in terms of process, you know, I have 23 new friends now, which is great. And I but it also there's a little bit of a sense within the Academy that collaborative research and collaborative writing and the creation of an edited volume is easier than someone who writes a monograph. And I'm gonna say that that is not true <laughs> at all. Um, this was incredibly rewarding and enjoyable and I it was uh, invigorating to bring people together and be talking about the ideas the whole time different specialties, different professions, different habits of work, um, all of that stuff. But it was also incredibly difficult. And it was, that's why it took such a long time to move from inception to publication, because we wanted to make sure that everybody felt heard, that their ideas were getting expressed the way they wanted to express them, that the conclusions that I was drawing were sort of fair enough. And by the way, not everyone agreed entirely with the conclusions that I drew, but they were, okay, fine, that's yours. Um, I I think, um, and the other piece of it was just publishing on a digital platform, which was really, really important to us because We also felt it was a radical act because it's open access. We didn't wanna rate this big book and then no one could afford it or you had to go to a university to get it. So it's completely open access. Anyone can read it at any time. But that also was a very big learning curve for us. Hopefully younger listeners, it will not be such a big learning curve, but metadata and all sorts of stuff that we had to figure out how to do on the fly was really, really challenging. As an aside, this is hopefully not a lesson we have to learn from, but the last pieces of this were being done during COVID and getting um, peer review slowed down tremendously. Um, It felt like a whole lot of waiting and waiting and getting anxious and wanting the book to be out in the world. And that was really challenging. Um, And then the last piece I'll say is the reason the book is 600 pages. (laughs) An important lesson for me, or I don't know if it's a lesson for me or something that I insisted upon. Everyone had been working on this project from the beginning. And I was like, no one's getting cut. (laughs) This is not a situation where you're submitting something for acceptance. This is a situation where we're working together to produce something. And everybody's piece was vetted by all of us and by external readers. And so everybody's everybody's voice is staying in this volume. And that was really important to me. And it's also another good reason to read it online and not buy the print copy, which is <laughs> too many pages. So for me, the biggest lessons just as a scholar were about taking those public history practices as, and putting them into a scholarly endeavor. And what does that look like? And it was wonderful and hard.
0: Thank you. That's a really valuable and, dare I say, beautiful thing to say about the work i think it's um for an edited volume particularly this length it all really hangs together and you can sense the collaboration that's um gone into that so i really commend you for that um practice and it is you know again as you say translating those equalitarian um let's call them practices of public history into volume production that really shines through in the in the content and the organization um of the book to ask the traditional farewell question um on the new books network (laughs) Uh, What's next for you in your research after this project?
1: Thank you for asking that, although I feel very pressured. No, (laughs) so um, in the last couple of years, I've actually been taking on a little bit more administrative role, so I spent a year as the the director of our Humanities Center um, in an interim position. I spent a year in an acting position as chair of our department, and I'm about to um, become the president of the National Council on Public History, all work that I dearly love, but also extremely time-consuming. All that to say, I'm just taking some baby steps on a research project. Um, working with two uh, colleagues from the National Museum of American History, who came to me with a question, which is, what is the role of a national history museum in the United States? Like, what the heck are we doing? <laughs> are we supposed to spit, you know, have a national narrative that's consensus-driven or not? So. That is a baby, baby first question, but I think that's the direction that I'm gonna go next, working with these colleagues to maybe do some comparative research in order to arrive at, again, a new platform for thinking about how we do national history at a national institution in the United States, which oddly doesn't like things that are national.
0: Uh, thank you, that's really exciting um, and I personally love to read that project and I'm sure many of our listeners would be really interested in that um, as well um, so yeah, thank you for your um, for your answers today, we often call this a book review podcast, but I sense um, some of the themes and some of the conversations we've had today extend far beyond that um, and extend to what life and practice as a historian, as a public historian looks like, so I'm immensely grateful for that um, and your time, given all those other commitments uh, you talked about there um, so, Professor Denise Meringolo, I've taken off your time today, but thank you for appearing on the New Books Network, and congratulations on Radical Roots. Again, it's open access, it's completely free, available on the internet, so if anyone's interested, please do um, log on to JSTOR, the equivalent websites, and it'll all be there ready to read through Amherst College Press. Um, thank you again, Professor Meringolo, and thank you for listening to New Books in American Studies.